You know, most problems in healthcare are fixed already. Primary care is already cured on the fringes. Reversing burnout, physician shortages, bad business models, forced buyouts, factory medicine, high deductible insurance that squeezes the docs and is totally inaccessible to most of the employees. The big squeeze is always on for docs. It's the acceleration of cost and the deceleration of reimbursements. I want you to meet those on this show that are making a difference with host Ron Barshop, CEO of Beacon Clinics. That's me. Welcome to the show. We spend more in America on healthcare alone than all but five national GDPs. France's GDP is about the same as what we spend here just on healthcare. This is US healthcare. We're the top capita per spend by double. So we are double Switzerland, which is in second place, but we're in the lowest percentile in outcomes of our peers. Infant mortality, we're last. We have falling mortality for the last three years now. So we're rated number 28 of 32 peers. This is US healthcare. Only two countries can advertise drugs on TV. New Zealand is the other one. And no category has built beat the Dow more consistently than big healthcare, which outspends the next four lobbies combined, which is Wall Street, Silicon Valley Defense, and Big Oil. In fact, we spend more than 25x of ARPA and NRA combined with U.S. healthcare. Medical errors are 10,000 a day and kill 200,000 to 420,000 yearly. The coroners don't record the errors as a cause of death, so there's a huge swing there. Um, this number is more than triple the opioid deaths, which are in the headlines every day, but Medical errors don't have any headlines. Adverse drug deaths is number four as a leading killer. So you're safer in your car than in a hospital due to these factors and hospital-acquired infections. 80% of the best 50 fundraisers are hospitals in America. This is U.S. healthcare. The primary care shortage today estimates are rising every year. There were 108,000 last year. There are 120,000 estimated this year, six years out. Because a third of the doctors are over 57 years old, and we're adding 10,000 Medicare enrollees every day for the next six years. So today we expect 120,000 docs shy of what we need due to this demographic silver tsunami. There are rural deserts for care that are countrywide here in Texas where I live. We have 20 counties with zero doctors. And over half our doctors are burned out. Suicide is double the rate of veterans. And 70% of physicians tell their children not to become doctors. This is U.S. healthcare. One in six Americans carry medical debt. Millennials are disproportionately predisposed for uh, medical debt. And 65% of all bankruptcies in America are medical bankruptcies, which is double the number of all the other causes combined for bankruptcy. And 70% of those people had insurance. Over half Americans cannot pull together $1,000, so they don't have the liquidity to meet their deductible. And we've had 20 years of wage stagflation, 90%, uh, 5% of the reason it's due to healthcare costs. 50% of millennials' lifetime income will be going to healthcare in the next 50 years. This is U.S. healthcare. Funding for Medicare and Medicaid are drying up in seven and a half years. And there are very serious people running for president of the United States who want to expand that for everybody. Today, we're going to meet someone who has an exceptional overview of all of this and we're going to talk about some of this. Yaron Tass is uh, the founder of Mephasis, which has now 22,000 employees and is seventh in India for their tech list based in Bangalore. 
He went on to help Citigroup start their internet banking in the 1990s and is currently the chief innovation and strategy officer for Royal Phillips, which is a 74,000 employee, $20 billion revenue company. You'll know him for their Norelco shavers and their sonic toothbrushes, but they're also global leaders in imaging, lighting, cardio, informatics. In the healthcare world, they're uh, clearly thought leaders. The CEO and your own are considered global thought leaders for healthcare. Uh, their goal is to touch billions of lives uh, at Philips. So we're very glad to have you on the show, Yaron. Thank you, Ron. My, my pleasure. These were quite some sobering facts that you listed there. Well, and what I'm hoping today to do is to kind of make the close the gap between what's going on on the ground and what Philips is doing to take care of that, and maybe some of your own opinions on what we can do to cure some of these ills that are in our system. So um, let's just talk about what progress we've made in the last few years, offering 24-7 integrative health, integrative care for chronic patients like your daughter, Kim, who you discovered has juvenile diabetes recently. Yeah, well, not recently. Um, she's actually uh, 29 now, and uh, she was uh, diagnosed when she was 12. And already at that time, I was uh, kind of shocked about the state of technology, but even more shocked about the lack of care coordination, because I had assumed that, you know, that care would be organized around patient needs, patient's acuity, patient risks, and it would look more holistically at patients. And, you know, type one diabetes is as good an example as, as, as other chronic diseases where you know, uh, in this case, it's uh, it's a disease that, you know, it, uh, you're genetically predisposed to. So something will trigger it and then you have it for the rest of your life. But it leads to many complications, you know, um, and, and many of them are well known. Eyesight, kidney failure, um, uh, skin problems. But uh, another aspect of this is hugely underestimated it's the mental aspects of the disease especially for for young women you know that deal with anxiety around the 100 200 odd decisions that they have to make every day in relation to their health and obviously we we, we all know the behavior is a major aspect of you know guiding patients towards better control of their chronic disease and um if I look back at the state of where the industry was, you know, um, 17 years ago and where we are today, um, I think the progress has been there, but definitely not to the point that where I believe it should be. And I think a lot of it has to do with the incentives in the system. And, um, you know, if we have a fee-for-service system where basically care is reimbursed for, you know, a consult, a test, a procedure, a hospital bed. Um, that's what people tend to optimize. If it's a system that's uh, incented towards outcomes, then that's what people tend to optimize. And, and we've seen cases where, you know, 24-7 chronic care um, basically being in touch with your patient, using digital technology to keep tabs on your patient and proactively reach out is just not fit with a clear reimbursement code. So 
um, it, it's kind of hard to support the system. It's hard to support a system where you know, you, you're essentially not baselining outcomes and give incentives to improve on those outcomes. You mentioned some numbers on you know, hospital-acquired infections, on the cost of healthcare. A lot of that cost is associated um, with a system that is clearly not focusing on those outcomes. Now, the good news, there, there are a couple of organizations in the U.S., that that are making strides in the right direction. You know, CMS is starting to do it. I think Medicare Advantage holds a whole lot of promise. Um, you know, organizations like Kaiser or Intermountain are visionary leaders that basically say, hey, you know, we understand that the reimbursement works this way, but we're going to either create our own health plans or start working with payers or CMS to come with a model that actually gonna bend the curve and will ultimately create better outcomes for patients. Well, let's talk about that for a second, Jerome. If you, if you were to look at the future direction of healthcare in America, it looks like value-based care, which is paying a per patient fee instead of a per procedure fee to keep heads out of beds, is the future. But the problem is that half of the patients are non-compliant with seeing a specialist. So they're referred out and they don't go. And then well over 90% of patients aren't even taking their medications the way they're supposed to. So if in value-based care, I'm a physician and I'm trying to get the patient to dance the tango with me and I don't have a dance partner, value-based care doesn't seem to work. No, I, and of course, that's a, that, that's a right observation. Maybe the jump is too big from um, you know, fee-for-service to full value-based care. And we all know there are interim steps you can take. But but I, I think there there's another aspect to this. If you say, hey, if I take joint responsibility with the patients on outcomes, um, then your role becomes different. And, uh, you know, if you look at the role of primary care physicians, um it's basically you come there when you have an issue and they will refer you to specialist care when they see there's a need to do that. Um, there might be another model where you say, hey, maybe the primary care physician takes more ownership of the health of the population. And a, lot, a large part of that is not purely clinical. It is social and behavioral as well. So, you know, well, I'm looking at a, I'm looking at a um, beautiful model and I've watched all your talks that I could understand and my Dutch is non-existent, but you have some wonderful visions of the future where Kim is in the center of a circle of care that has a stress manager and activities and an internist and nutritionist, ophthalmologist, psychologist, primary care doctor, insulin care, blood glucose monitoring and nutrition, stress, all circled around Kim's day-to-day -day life so that she has less decisions to make and less stress in her life. She has really, she is the center of attention. So your vision of the future looks like um, an AI-based vision that's supporting the PCP and helping her make the right decisions in her daily life. Is that where we're growing? Is that where we're going for Kim? Yeah, I, I, I think that's where we want to go. And, and that doesn't mean that all these people are all day long supporting her. Uh, no, these are multidisciplinary teams that work with patients like her. And of course, if you're no longer constrained to 
you know, know the, the location, then of course you can do this at scale. You can do this in a state or in a region or in the Netherlands and have a service like this for all you know, young women with type 1 diabetes or older people with type 2 diabetes and COPD. So, so you basically start structuring your, uh, your care around the needs of patients, which is not a strange concept if you think about it. And there you, you want to optimize the care pathway, taking into account you know, behavioral, social, economic background, because it's not purely clinical. And, and obviously, if you want to do this at scale, you have to automate. And uh, AI can play a big role in, you know, keep tracking, creating almost like closed loop pathways for, for patients. And, you know, there will be, of course, human interventions because ultimately a doctor or a nurse needs to make the judgment and need to intervene at the right time. Uh, but there's no reason why we cannot believe that um, an AI-enabled system can tee up, you know, the need for interventions based on acuity gleaned from many parameters, which may be, you know, continuous glucose meter, a connected insulin pen or pump, um, you know, a, a Fitbit or, you know, uh, other ways to track, you know, activity and behavioral aspects. And it all comes together. It's constantly in the background interpreted. And uh, when the AI spots a need for an intervention, it will give the multidisciplinary team an alert and they can then you know, basically decide on the intervention, which may mean, hey, uh, let's talk to Kim, let's, let's work with her on maybe a new insulin regimen to help her get back into her, her sweet spot. And while we talk to her, we can glean some more information about potential, you know, anxiety and stress, because that will further exacerbate the condition. I'm almost looking at like uh, a human dashboard that we have. Each will have a dashboard that shows a proclivity to take a fall, a proclivity to not take our meds, a proclivity to have stress over diabetes that, that will actually have an AI monitored uh, checklist that some system will manage for us. Is that, is that existing today or is that coming our way or is where are we with that? I, I think that's where we're building up to. Um, uh, so our, our vision of, of the future is indeed, you know, a highly personalized perspective of the patient through what we call, you know, the digital twin, which basically means that I'm, I'm collecting over time a lot of long, longitudinal patient information of Kim, and I start seeing patterns there, and I can compare these patterns with patients like her and from there, we can glean what, you know, the best protocols or interventions might be. And again, these may not be um, all clinical. You know, it can be that my wife and I are part of Kim's care team, and we may be prompted to, to reach out, or we may have value, valuable input to her situation that can help in the right decision-making. And it applies to my daughter, but it could equally apply, you know, to your mother or, or dad living alone uh, with three chronic diseases of which one mental, um, 
five or six medications that, as you rightly point out, are not be taken on time. So there are many ways to, to help people create a routine around their health. There are many ways to guide people on adhering to their medication through medication compliance devices or you know if you talk to some people they're even looking at medication that uh, that will um, broadcast essentially when uh, when it's taken through connected uh, pills uh, but the cameras can help as well we're, we're investing a lot of uh, um, research into computer vision there is uh, my 84 year old mother is on her medications doing a great job and great health we worry about her taking a fall. Um, ICU deaths record uh, top three is a fall. You're going to take a fall. You're going to break your hip. You're going to develop pneumonia, and that's the end of your life. You're, everything degrades from there. What in the Phillips worldview and your worldview do you see as the um, dashboard looking like for my mom so that we can make sure she's doing all the right things to prevent a fall, as an example? Yeah, for, for instance, we have a... Uh, a product called uh, Lifeline, which is, uh, you know, a pendant uh, with a, I always say it's like the smallest uh, mobile phone, which has a, a big button on it, but it will detect the fall and it will automatically dial out to our uh, medical response center. And uh, so we will automatically check whether, you know, she's still conscious, whether she can get up, and if not, we'll will arrange care for, for her. But uh, we do more than that. Um, uh, we actually uh, can identify increased risk of falls by um, changing patterns. So, you know, we can see if your mother is getting, getting up more slowly, um, doesn't move that much, her gait is changing, these can all be indicators that she has a heightened risk of, of fall. So that could be then an alert that can trigger an intervention. Um, we also use c computer vision, so basically closed-loop cameras that that can look at, you know, not just false detect false, but it can also see, let's say, your mother getting out of bed uh, six times a night or not getting up in the morning at all. Uh, we can glean vital signs from uh, from cameras. And, and now you don't need to stream these cameras because we, we can put an AI chip next to the camera and only um, send out alerts if things are out of the ordinary um, so that people don't feel their privacy intruded. But these are technologies that are mature enough to, to be deployed. You know, our lifeline technology is highly mature and, you know, hundreds and thousands of elderly people are wearing it to detect falls and, you know, respond immediately if a fall is detected. So you run my, my mother, I think if I were to say, we're going to set up some cameras in your bedroom and living room and bathroom, and we're going to uh, have motion detectors to make sure that everything's all right for you, but no humans are going to see it. It's all going to be on a computer system somewhere. She's going to really push back on the privacy issue that you brought up. What, what do we do to get past that? I, I think it's a personal choice. You know, I, I don't think we, we should force anybody to do this. Um, but we've seen that, you know, having the fall detection, the two-way video capabilities, um, the opportunity to speak to a care professional 
at any time, um, give people uh, a sense of, you know, control over their own health, the ability to live at home and get back their dignity. And, you know, it may not be for everybody and it may be, may be in different flavors, but I genuinely believe that technology can really augment people that, that require that, you know, oversight and, and allow them to live at home and make the best of their lives. In one of your talks, Sharon, you talked about a associate who has Crohn's disease and uh, it's managed now, but it wasn't for a long time. And, um, you know, inflammation really triggers so many different diseases. And at that point in your talk, you talked about how we are going to soon be able to get to the root cause of these inflammations that are the trigger for so many diseases, whether it's cancer or neurological diseases or, or gut diseases like Crohn's. Um, what is going on with CRISPR and with DNA, um, the future of DNA, so that we maybe can even eliminate the disease when we discover it before it becomes chronic? Yeah, I, I, I think there's a lot of work going on, and some of it will take years to actually, you know, reach the regular care processes. But um, so, you know, number one, we see more and more from images. So, you know, CT scan, MR scan, and, and we use artificial intelligence to go deeper and deeper on what we can glean from that information. We now have digital pathology where we can glean information from biomarkers on cell tissue and of course genomics and, and genomics uh, is highly relevant because it it will give our predisposition to acquire diseases so you have genetic biomarkers that can be highly rec uh, relevant also for preventative uh, you know protocols um, but there are a whole bunch of other things where a lot of inf um, research is ongoing. So um, proteomics, where um, you know companies are looking at at the proteins that basically are an expression of your uh, genetic code, and detect diseases in um, you know looking at 500, 600 different proteins at the same time, looking for patterns and actually detecting disease there even before it's manifested or you start showing the symptoms. Um, the microbiome, I think it's, it's a lot of research is going in there to, to really look at, you know, uh, how your gut works and uh, what the impact is on your health. You know, if you have inflammation um, and you're predisposed, then that can trigger disease. So the better you understand it, uh, the better you can deal with it. And you also mentioned, you know, some of the immunotherapies that are going on first in, in cancer, but I think it will transpose to diseases like type 1 diabetes as well, uh, where, you know, researchers now are using CRISPR, the DNA manipulation techniques, if you will, to reprogram your immune system to either attack a cancer or stop attacking um, a pancreas, which happens with type 1 diabetes. Um, so, uh, you know, using your own immune system, programming your own immune system to deal with some of those diseases. And, you know, I, I, I cannot say that, you know, it all will be there in the next couple of years, but there's a lot of promising research going on. And a lot of it is actually also backed up by artificial intelligence, because 
you know, we as human beings are hugely complex and emerging and, um, you know, everything influences everything. Uh, so we start finding patterns that we never seen before. Now, we may not be able to explain everything. I'll give you an example. We did uh, research on uh, predicting cranial pressure. That's the pressure between your skull and your brain in the fluid there, which is a, a strong indicator for, um, you know, some neuro uh, diseases. And in order to, to measure that, you have to drill a hole in the skull and physically measure it. So we've taken millions of um, ICU records combined with electronic medical records. And from that, we could quite accurately predict what the cranial pressure was, the gold standard being obviously, you know, the, the, the physical pressure measurement. We just couldn't explain why. <laughs> so we find patterns in the data that are highly predictive, but there may be, you know, so many factors at play that it's hard to have a coherent medical theory but we see it in the data and the data is consistently uh, predictive. And I think we're going to see more and more of that. And obviously we need to find a way to, you know, assess whether that can actually be used for medical practice if we don't have the scientific theory behind it. I'm going to um, give you a couple of examples of AI being used here in America that is very exciting. From a couple of our past guests we had recently, uh, Crystal Eisenhower is the CEO of Perionomics, and she had a question in medical school, why are neurological diseases triggered and autoimmune disease triggered out of nowhere? It can't be out of nowhere. Something has to be in the body triggering it, an inflammation, an infection of some kind. And so she created an AI-based DNA monitoring of what the gut should look like, what the proper pathogen should look like in your body. And she can detect with her uh, blood test, urine test, or saliva test, if your pathogens are correctly balanced and based on their DNA profiles or whether something's out of whack. And so she can find an infection in the body much quicker that might lead to Parkinson's or other neurological diseases or other autoimmune diseases. So um, very exciting stuff going on with the diagnostic side with just a simple blood test or urine test. Yeah, and I, I think that will continue to increase. But I think these are only, you know, perspectives be, because I think the whole is really complex. So that that's, for instance, why we're looking at, uh, you know, the idea of the digital twin is that, you know, a blood test, um, an ultrasound, um, an image, you know, your medical records, your vital signs, it all creates a set of perspectives that together may be an approximation of what's going on, what, what may trigger disease, what influences disease. And uh, I think the more holistic we start looking at it, um, I think the more insights we'll, we'll glean. And these will be aspects of it as well. You know, I, as I said, proteomics is very promising. Um, you know, what we can, and, and you can glean that from, from a, a, a blood test. So, uh, but if we, if you look at what we're seeing on images, uh, what we see in genomics, um, what we even can glean from progressive uh, interpretation of vital signs, um, what we can see in behavior, 
um, you know, there are many applications of AI that can detect in the tremor of a voice whether you you have a disease or not. So, but these will be aspects, and collectively, and there will maybe overlapping diagnostic capabilities. But I think when you put them together, it's only then that you you get to a view. You know, just like a self-driving car, it's not just the the GPS, it's a camera, it's a LiDAR, it's a radar, it's motion sensors, it's digital maps, it's GPS, it's all these things together that give you a pretty good view of the real world so that you the car can make its decisions. Well, I really appreciate your ability to bring these problems on the ground and tell, tell us exactly how this is going to change our lives in the coming years. Um, I want to tell you about one other guest that you'll be extremely interested in because of the uh, strong imaging footprint that uh, Philips has. Um, Ron Vianu is the CEO and founder of a company called Cavera Health. And Cavera determined to everybody's surprise that 40% of all radiology reads are misread. And what he learned through a deeper analysis is that most radiologists are really specialists. They just don't announce it. They're really strong in a neat, narrow niche, just like a specialist in uh, medical care. And so he created an AI-based solution that helps the radiologists actually determine where they should be really focusing, um, where their center of gravity should be, instead of focusing as a generalist where they should be paying attention, and has a, almost a rating system and a retraining system to make sure every radiologist is aware of that. And the radiologists are, radiologists are embracing this. This makes total sense, obviously. And, you know, the, uh, of course, we all know that uh, the more you do a certain uh, domain, the better you get at it. And that's, uh, that specifically applies to healthcare, you know. Um, if, if you're a, a neuroradiologist, there's enough there to spend a lifetime on it. Absolutely. Well, there's a um, final question I'm going to ask you to make sure we're within our timelines with you. And um, if you could fly a banner over the world and give a single message to the world of hope for healthcare, what would that look like? Uh, my message would be that uh, we will be uh, true technology and, of course, the visionary healthcare leaders, we will be able to create way better outcomes and for, for everybody. Uh, we will, will allow us to live healthier lives. And, um, ultimately, we will get to a system that, that's not increasingly inflating the cost of care uh, while the outcomes go the other way. Um, I definitely believe that we're at a inflection point where the curve will start bending the other way. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.